Joe and I will be at the Canadian Renewable Energy Association's Electricity Transformation Canada 2023 event. And I, I had to look up, I haven't been to, to Calgary before, uh, even though I was a huge fan of the Calgary Flames hockey team for a long time, especially when they, when they won the Stanley Cup. That was pretty awesome. Uh, but Calgary is the largest city in Alberta with 1.4 million people. So Rosemary, is that, is that bigger or, or smaller than Canberra? Uh, bigger. It's like three, three times the size. Calgary is like the Denver of Canada, right up against the mountains, farms on the other side, good beef and Caesars. It's the cleanest city in the world. And there's also 120 languages spoken in the city. That seems like a lot. Uh, <laughs> maybe because of the oil. Maybe that's what it is. It brings people from all over the world to it. But here's the one I'm really worried about. The highest recorded temperature ever in Calgary was 97 degrees. <laughs> We're going to be there almost in November, pretty close. So if the highest temperature ever was 97, I'm figuring it's going to be just slightly above freezing while we're over there, Joel. Perfect. That's what I like. They have those Chinooks there, right? Where the temperature suddenly swings by like 20, 20 degrees and or 40, if you're talking Fahrenheit, in just a, an hour or two, doesn't it? Rosemary, you're recommending that I bring shorts and a t-shirt and wool mittens. Moving back to the United States, uh, big, big news out of New York. Uh, the New York regulators rejected requests from developers of several offshore sites in their bid to uh, add to their PPA prices. And this went through a whole bureaucratic decision-making process, but at the end of it, there was a vote, uh, and they voted to essentially tell everybody, no, we're not going to adjust our pricing. And if you want to cancel, go ahead and cancel. So the governor, governor got involved in this a little bit and sort of said, oh, you know, we, 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 we don't want you to cancel. We, we just want it to be more affordable. <laughs> so, so the offshore companies that are trying to develop these, and we're not going to negotiate because that would, that would ruin the integrity of the system we have developed. Here's what the intent is now. They're, going to, they're not going to allow them to raise prices. They're saying if you want to cancel, you cancel. You have to pay the fees. And then we're going to go through an accelerated uh, bid process again with the same developers to see if they give us some lower prices. And I cannot figure out for the life of me why they think they're going to get lower prices by rebidding it. They're going to get the same prices they had before. Or higher. Or higher. Yeah, because you have to pay. They have to pay off the, the the penalty they they paid and earn that money back somehow, which is and the cost of everything has gone up in the meantime. Right. It looks like New York is totally okay with everybody paying a fine and reapplying uh, for the same projects because there are there will be no new projects. There's no pl no new plots of water to develop a project. Right, and you've the Boehm lease is to a specific entity. So who else are you going to work with if you're not going to negotiate, then you're going to still be working with the same companies anyway, because they're not going to sell the plot unless they think it's unviable. Like it could, could say like, you know, Orsted, could they sell Sunrise that, that plot? I mean, is that, is that in the, the cards? Joel, they could, 
So just uh, let's address that first. Uh, they could, but the only reason they would do that would be to raise cash. Who's going to pay them a premium for that plot at this point? Remember how much, how expensive those plots were in the first place. Who's going to pay them tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for for that? In at this time, given the fact that New York is so, you know, they've set these goals for 2030 that they obviously have no intention of meeting with this behavior to not demonstrate a willingness to even negotiate. Because as has been indicated before, what does everybody think is going to happen the second go around? The companies requested these increases because it's a negotiating tactic. They requested something that used to be, you know, $80 and now they're requesting $190 a megawatt hour. How about you negotiate to find a middle ground? That makes more sense than going through all this nonsense. They pay the cancellation fee and then they've got to bid something that's $170 a megawatt hour to make up for the fact that they're paying you, you know, 60, 70, 80 million to cancel in the first place. This is insane. This has gotten absolutely insane. I think people have kind of um, gotten used to the early stages of the, the energy transition, which was, you know, um, you can add in as much wind and solar as you as you want, as you can build. Solar was getting cheaper really, really fast. And wind energy was also just getting cheaper and cheaper and including for offshore. Um, and I think that that is, you know, the days of the early tra energy transition are over and now we're not at the point where it doesn't matter where your, you know, zero emissions megawatt hour comes from. It, it does matter whether it's wind or solar now, because, you know, we're definitely getting to the point in most, um, most markets that have a lot of renewables, you, you know, they have enough solar that it's starting to cause problems. You haven't, you know, too much solar for the middle of the day and then no renewables at night. And so, um, I, I think. One, we have to stop getting used to winds, you know, super fast um, cost reductions because it's not like that anymore. And I think that we might have even, you know, been tricked into prices falling lower than their, you know, real eventual um, endpoint because of competition with China, which is maybe not totally transparent about what its real costs are. Um, and two, the value of, of wind is not the same as the value of solar. If you think that you're going to get to any sort of a 2030, um, you know, emissions target with solar alone, um, then you're going to find yourself with a very expensive bill for batteries at, the, you know, in 2029, when you realize that, oh, okay, yeah, well, we've got, you know, all of these megawatt hours, but we can only use half of them. Um, you're going to find out that, Wind's value is a lot more and it's cheaper than the technologies that you're going to actually, um, you know, have to replace it with if you allow all of the, you know, wind developers, all of the wind turbine manufacturers to go bankrupt, you know, we'll just find ourselves in the same point where we are with battery supply chains, where, you know, we all of a sudden realize now what um, China has been doing since the 90s of, you know, grabbing that whole industry for themselves so no one else knows how to do it. Um, you know, we're not at that point with wind yet, but we're just kind of, you know, it's really funny because wind energy was supposed to be the easy part of the energy transition, right? Like, and then, um, you know, we've finally gotten to the point where we're saying, okay, well, now we're ready to work on the hard parts. We're going to get our, you know, our battery uh, manufacturing uh, and supply chain in-house, um, 
and we're going to start subsidising really expensive end of the energy transition things like carbon capture and direct air capture and, I don't know, um, emissions from cement and green steel, all that really hard stuff, spending heaps and heaps of money on. But you can't have an extra dollar or two for the, keeping the wind industry happening. It, it's it's crazy, you know, like we're going full steam ahead on all the hard stuff and just absolutely failing at the easy part of the energy transition. I just think people need to take a, a longer view and think, you know, why is it necessary that the wind industry, you know, is just um, <laughs> just at the mercy of free market economics while in every other aspect of the energy transition we're happy to you know, um, pay for the outcomes that we want for the climate and not just the market. It's it's insane to me that people can't see where this is going to go. This goes back, Bill, to that discussion on another podcast where they were breaking down the amount of IRA bill uh, sort of distribution into what renewable. And the vast majority, like 93% was going into electric vehicles and slash batteries for electric vehicles, 93%. The remaining 7% was pretty much in solar slash heat pumps. That left like a fraction of a fraction going to wind energy, which is the opposite of what should be happening right now. The prior, as Rosemary is pointing out, the priorities are backwards. When we're spending billions of dollars for every billion dollars we throw at something, we could have had a gigawatt of wind. And right now we're throwing away billions of dollars at projects that have really no impact today when we could be doing something impactful right now in wind. Every wind turbine we put, we install now is going to provide clean energy for the future. So, you, you know, you're leveraging um, all of your, everything else that you electrify, you know, every electric vehicle you put in, every heat pump, um, those are going to reduce emissions a lot better if your electricity is, is cleaner. And so, I don't know, people sometimes they don't understand that the speed that you reduce emissions matters because it's the total amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that, that matters. If we put in a huge bulk of clean energy generation now and reduce emissions quickly, then we buy ourselves a lot of time for the really hard stuff. You know, we buy ourselves time to solve long-haul aviation and shipping and all those, you know, really hard few last few percent um so it, it matters the order that you do things and we're we're stuffing it up all of this like watching doe funding come out here in the states like you watch it's like oh today we we put 24 million out here and we put 36 million out here and we put 70 million out here and they're funding projects that are at this t technology readiness le readiness level one two and three where we should be putting money into things that are trl eight and nine or like these projects like hey if we've got a problem with a uh, you know a ppa agreement or something like oh, take some of that 70 million bucks here and let's get this thing built that's the frustrating part right we're, we're building the grid backwards we're building demand to use electricity we're not actually building the grid to provide electricity it is opposite and new york has been on a pathway since the cuomo administration the most recent cuomo administration where they're closing nuclear power plants which is taking more energy off the grid they're, they really don't have a lot of wind resources on land. Onshore is not, if you look at the wind maps, New York is not that place. Offshore is a big, big, big driver. And solar is not that big of a thing in New York at the moment. It's growing, of course. But if they're going to reach some 2030 target, they're going to have to do something really quick. And either they're going, to, they're going to have blackouts, brownouts, intentional brownouts and blackouts, or they're going to have to change the law that lets them have more natural gas coming in and 
making electricity. That's that really is where they're at today. And they don't seem to be willing to make any decision because they're afraid of the political consequences of it. But somebody's going to have to make a decision at some point. This can't go on forever. In rejecting the uh, opportunity to negotiate these current deals, you know, the, the folks from NYSERDA came out and said, oh, we're, we're protecting, you know, New York ratepayers. But at the end of the day, this is going to end up costing everybody more. And you weren't really protecting New York ratepayers in the first place because you're <laughs> delaying something that is going to help alleviate some of those blackouts and brownouts. And you're driving up the cost and delaying the, the opportunity to achieve those 2030 goals. So I don't know why they're busy patting themselves on the back for anything and, you know, getting a ton of congratulations from a lot of other people that don't seem to understand consequences to decisions like this. You'll be saving money when you uh, no, don't have your power on and you're reading by candlelight. Well, I think uh, you can see why, you know, to someone who's not paying very close attention, it makes sense. You, you know, it sounds really unfair. We agreed a price and now you're going back on it. Inflation isn't that bad. But I mean, I just um, searched on Wall Street Journal, the yeah NYSE American Steel Index. And in 2020, it was less than half what it is now. I mean, so there's a doubling in what makes up 80% of the mass of a, a wind turbine, probably more for offshore. Um, so, you know, like inflation isn't, isn't even across the board. And I know in Australia, we're having a, a big problem with, um, housing construction because there were a lot of projects. There was a housing boom, a construction boom. A lot of people signed on for fixed price contracts. Um, and then the, you know, so builders were, you know, really busy, had a lot of projects and then, yeah, cost of a lot of building materials doubled and, um, a lot of, a lot of builders have gone bankrupt over it. And, you know, you can say, oh yeah, we had a, we had an agreement for the price of the house. I'm going to, um, that, you know, I was going to pay for a house. It's a fixed price, so I'm not going to pay any more, but when your builder goes bankrupt, you still don't have a house for any price and you will have to, you know, build book in for a new contract with one of the very few builders that are left in business and um, based on today's prices. So you can see, yes, it's not fair that you have a fixed price contract and someone goes back on it. But on the other hand, you know, we're all adults. So you can see what's the actual consequence of, um, you know, maintaining the hard line that you're legally entitled to. And I think, yeah, New York's about to find out. So do you think if you had a really good and or creative legal team, you could go back and claim COVID as a force majeure for the interest rates going up and your contract falling apart? No. You know why? Because I think the Biden administration and the DOE would push back against you nationally. Now, there's one other aspect of this, which hasn't been mentioned yet, which is how is New York not culpable in this in the first place? Because those contracts were negotiated two, two and a half years ago. Where were the permits to build the project because had they issued them almost immediately after that was negotiated instead of having this overly oppressive regulatory process and environmental renew review process then guess what those projects would already be steel in the water and you know about to flip the switch just like they are with you know vineyard wind and um south fork so I, I'm unclear as to why, you know, again, the officials and regulatory um, folks in New York are kind of busy patting themselves on the back like they did everybody a giant favor here. Uh, they are culpable in this and then refusing to negotiate 
is outrageous. It's just outrageous. If you're in Iowa and you're a wind producer in Iowa right now, you are just licking your chops knowing that New York's going to have to come groveling to you for electricity pretty soon. So the more electricity that's coming out of the Midwest, that's where it's going to come from. Where are they going to get it from? They're going to get it from Canada, which is what they do right now, right? Where are they going to go? They're going to have to go somewhere besides New York. That's what they're designing this system to do. They're going to have to pull energy from somewhere else. Yeah, at the same time, they're throwing away jobs. That's what they're doing. Yeah, those good-paying union jobs. You just toss them out the window. No, no, no word on that when that, when that happened, right? I, I just don't understand it. It's a level of frustration that I don't think I've seen before in wind, and you can feel it throughout the industry like, this is really bad. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. Orstep's about to put up $100 million guarantee that it will build New Jersey's first offshore wind farm by the end of 2025. Now, Ocean Wind 1 uh, is, is the one project that looks like it's going to happen off the East Coast at the moment. Uh, the project must be commercially operational by uh, 2024. Right? So if not, Orsted forfeits the whole uh, $100 million. Uh, this is a big deal. Right. So what happened was New Jersey was taking all the federal incentives, tax credits for themselves. They said, well, Orsted doesn't need it. We'll just keep it. We're politicians. Why don't we just appropriate it to ourselves? Which is what they did. And Orsted said, well, wait a minute. We're going to have to raise PPA prices <laughs> accordingly, right? Because they are planning on that money. So now they kind of flipped the switch and New Jersey is saying, well, and they actually passed some legislation about this. You can keep the federal money, but you have to get the project running. So that's the swap. Uh, I think the, the money bill was around $40 million coming from the Fed. That was an early estimate because I don't think those numbers are locked in yet. So at the end of the day, they ended up paying $60 million more. Uh, but <clears throat> there was previously, Orson said Ocean, Ocean Wind 1 was going to be delayed till 2026, and that it could, in theory, abandon the project. So uh, in this little swap, it looks like Orson is going to go ahead and move that project. Now, I wonder also, Phil, if this has something to do with New York, that because New York is not going to do any projects, that maybe New Jersey is going to be smart and start selling electricity to New York. And that the more projects they develop on the New Jersey side, where the lines come into New Jersey, they could take all the lines from all those uh, bike, bike sites, run them into New Jersey, and just start selling energy to New York and keep the proceeds, right? That seems like a really good plan by New Jersey at the moment. I, I have no further comment on that other than that is exactly what you should do in light of the completely nonsensical and inexplicable uh, actions by the New York regulators. So it's a good move. The question, well, the question is, is this project actually going to get built on time? Because as you said, you know, the reason Orsted wanted to delay to 2026 was because you know, commodity cost increases, turbine price increases, and, and even some of the other ancillary things associated with, um, you know, EPC contracting, vessel availability, et cetera. 
uh, the, all those prices have gone up. So the question is, can Orsted actually build this by the end of 2024? I'm, I'm hoping. I, I'm not necessarily convinced, but I'm hoping. If all the other projects go silent, that means there's ships available. That means turbine prices in, would have to drop. That every, everything, all of a sudden, all, all the obstacles all of a sudden are gone. It's a gamble. It's like Atlantic City, right? You can put your money down and see what happens. But it's a better gamble now that New York's not going to develop anything. We'll, we'll see. Because nothing was locked in for New York yet either. A lot of the turbine supply contracts hadn't been finalized because there wasn't FID. Um, so you, we're at a point where, yes, I, going back to the original premise, this is a good thing for New Jersey. It's also potentially a good thing for New York if New Jersey builds these projects and has extra power that they can, you know, do an offtake agreement with New York. The question is, is this timeline something that Orsted is actually, do they believe in it or were they kind of forced into, you know, yes, we'll give you this tax credit, but you're going to money back, but you're still going to have to guarantee more than that tax credit money through this $100 million guarantee, and, you know, should you even miss by, you know, one second, you know, into 2025, like, we get to keep everything. I think the scary, one of the scary things here is, could be, is <clears throat> with all these other New York bite auction projects being either delayed, canceled, but not reaching final investment decision, FID, like Phil was talking about, is the ancillary services build out. What happens to that? What happens to the people that have been ramping up to build ships and ramping up to build, you know, the subsea cables? And we're talking rock dumps and all, and ports and all these other things. Like, what if all of those go like, well, you know what? We're not willing to take the risk to, to throw our capital out there. So everything else gets slowed up and all of a sudden you have one project being built and then they're looking for services. You know, we were banking on there being a, a plethora of them available to support us. But all of a sudden now the Crowleys of the world and the other ports and stuff and they dish, they they put a hard stop on it. That would be uh, catastrophic for the offshore wind sector. Yeah, but upper New, New Jersey, right? The northern New Jersey is a huge port already, right? There, there's a lot of ship coming in and out of there and, and petroleum products and who knows what else is coming through there. So they're, New Jersey, weirdly, is set up for all this traffic where they don't have to worry about it. Northern New Jersey is very industrial. If you've been to Newark Airport, you, you'll see it. Uh, so it's, it's not shocking. I do think it's kind of in the realm of like all the NFL teams in New York. They all are in New Jersey. And pretty soon all the power is going to be coming from New Jersey too. The unions at Siemens Gamesa announced they will begin mobilizations due to fears of a new quote-unquote restructuring at the company. Obviously, Siemens Gamesa is, is facing heavy losses, and they've been trying, the unions have been trying to have meetings with management, and that and the management keeps pushing the meetings off or canceling the meetings. So the unions are starting to get really concerned about this because they, they feel like there's going to be some significant layoffs. And uh, the obviously the union workers are putting pressure on the unions to try to find out what's going on. This all seems to be coming to a head in November. So it sounds like uh, the company is saying we're going to be able to discuss these things closer to the end of November, which is going to be after all the financial statements are made, sort of the middle of November. Uh, Siemens Gamesa is expected to close with about a four and a half billion euro loss and has turned down roughly 1 billion euros in contracts in the last quarter. 
So they are really slowing down on commitments going forward. So even if they magically could get the ship righted, they don't have any orders, which again, I, I don't understand the lack of orders at the moment. So something bigger is playing. And I think the union is starting to sniff it out that uh, they see factory closure coming up. Not sure why uh, that they can't get any answers at the moment, because it seems like it's they should be in talks, right? Europe's a lot different than the United States. And even the United States has some baseline rules. You just can't lay off everybody without giving some heads up. I assume Europe has even harder requirements, longer requirements. So is this another risk for Siemens Gamesa? Or at this point, does it, does it, does it matter? It, it, things are so bad that whatever happens with the unions is going to happen with the unions and they're just going to move on? What, what's the status here? The short answer is yes. Uh, the bloodletting that is almost inevitable is going to impact everybody. <laughs> the, the thing, though, with unions in Europe is that there is mandatory, and it's usually a minimum of 60 days, um, but normally unions do between four months and six months worth of notice um, if layoffs are, are going to happen. Uh, so they they normally have ample time to anticipate what's what's coming, but um, it, it almost seems like this is inevitable given the direction that things are going. I you know we've talked about it off air a little bit, but the fact of the matter is I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bankruptcy forthcoming for the Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy Division. Um, I, because this, I, I, I think that's maybe the only way they dig themselves out of the hole that they put themselves in and then kept digging themselves deeper into. Does that mean they would want to separate the Siemens Gamesa off again? It is sort of a standalone thing, an entity at the moment. It's tied to Siemens Energy, but would Siemens AG create a partition between the companies such that Siemens AG doesn't get drawn into it? It's it's a reorganization. Right? That's what it smells like is coming as reorganization and, and drawing this out. I don't think you'd have to sell that. What I think the it's this this goes back to uh, to the discussion that was on the podcast that Rosemary was on about peak wind and it's sort of the frustration when I was listening to this and I thought Rosemary did an excellent job on that podcast by the way uh, that if Europe is serious about producing wind turbines, this is the time. This is exactly that time where the countries in the EU, the greater EU, is going to have to do something. So either they're going to open the door to China and let China bring in turbines at a lower cost, or more likely stand up some of these companies with a bankroll to let them produce turbines, which I do think is almost inevitable at this point. Uh, and you can't do that with just one man with a handful of manufacturers. You're going to need a Siemens Gamesa as a big part of that uh, distribution. But so here's a look like, back to your question too, Alan. Why why have they made the decision to stop selling? So in my mind, I would think, okay, maybe we we know we have a problem with this particular model or design. Well, let's hold off on that one. Maybe how about we start selling some of the other ones or start pushing some more of these orders on on other things. Doesn't that seem to make sense? Because how are you going to dig yourself out if you, you have no order book? One of your biggest cash flow outputs is employees. Always is. So if you're trying to provide six months, nine months of 
unemployment, which I, or maybe a year's worth of unemployment, which I almost would feel like is going to happen here for factory workers. Where are you going to get the cash to do that? What you do is you start laying off white collar workers where you don't have that requirement, generally speaking, and then you can manage the union problem at the same time. So my guess is that the higher paid salespeople are usually the first to go if they're trying to reorganize. That's, that's why when Phil says reorganization, uh, bankruptcy, it smells right. Not say we are right, but that's what it smells like because that's the way the trend happens. Well, when you look at a, the, um, a market cap of basically $10 billion and you're looking at $4.5 in losses, 50% in losses versus your market cap, you got to do something extreme. So the unions, unions getting bad feelings about this, rightfully so. They, sh- they should be not sleeping right. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's just a shame, right? Because you have developed a, a good factory system. They've had some uh, what sounds like more basic, almost engineering problems. I don't want to lay this on the feet of engineering, but it's starting from the, the word out in the industry is it sounds like it's some engineering issues. And Siemens, Gamesa's kind of admitted it, saying they didn't test enough. Uh, yeah, the factory workers are in the pinch, right? They're always the one that's going to get hammered here long term. And if you, if you have a, a standing factory, you hate to close it for any length of time because as we found out in the United States a year or two ago, when you shutter a plant for a couple of months, not everybody comes back. You're only getting like 30% of the people to come back at the moment, which, is, which what are you going to do? It, and then you're really in a pinch. I, I just don't see anything happy happen coming out of this unless the EU and local governments start stepping in to right this ship. I think that we'll, we'll maybe listen back to some of these podcast episodes here in November when they release this report where they're supposed to outline what their issues are. My comparison is Bombardier Aerospace, which is based up in uh, Montreal, basically, Quebec, Montreal. Uh, when they ran into difficulty financially, the uh, province, the Quebec province, threw a billion dollars into that pie to keep that company running. And they did for a number of years. Too big to fail. It was so many jobs. It was so many jobs. Yeah, exactly. Joel, you nailed it right on the head. It's such a big industry, and it has such great potential that you, you really can't lose it right now. Well, and you're talking energy security. That's, the, that's the, the hashtag there, right? That's the buzzword, energy security for everybody, especially when you've got the EU saying, hey, we're going to look into probes even into these Chinese manufacturers, and one of your largest manufacturers that's right mainland Europe is failing. They've got to do something or may have to do something. Yeah, and with the recent events in the Middle East and everything happening in Northern Europe at the same time, you would have to say this goes beyond like trying to have a, a financially st- stable industry. This becomes national security. And once they switch that thought process into national security, which Rosemary's ra- raised a couple of times, like, hey, this is beyond like saving the planet CO2, which is great. We should do that too. But now we come, sort of switch phases here into more a serious nature, which Thing lands into the laps of the politicians to do something, and it's got to happen this year. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. 
Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Italy and Greece are planning a new one gigawatt high voltage DC subsea power cable to increase interconnection and share renewable energy. That sounds terrific. The almost $800 million project is called GRITA, G-R-I-T-A, Greece, Italy, number two. <laughs> and it received approval for public consultation. It'll include about a 150 mile subsea cable and two, uh, well, let me rephrase that. It will include two. 150 mile subsea cables between the two countries, uh, and when you because it's HVDC, once it gets on land, they got to convert it back to AC so they can distribute it in the grid. This is not the first time that Greece and Italy have done this. This will actually be the second cable uh, connecting the two countries together. There is a 500 megawatt cable that was put in place in 2002. And Rosemary, you've been doing a lot of research on these HVDC connector cables. It does seem like they're becoming more and more popular. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one big reason is that as we add variable renewable sources to electricity grids, then you want to connect, you know, large geographic areas. Um, so, you know, obviously if you're connecting east to west then and you've got a lot of solar in both regions, then you can kind of effectively extend the, um, you know, the hours of daylight in your in your grid by connecting some east to west distance. So I don't know. If there's a time difference between Italy and Greece, I guess it's not not so far. Would you say like 200 and something kilometer cable? You know, may, maybe you're going to get an extra half hour or hour, which can make a difference. You know, to be able to allow, for example, you know, Italy's um, afternoon sun to power Greece's evening, perhaps. Um, and then there's also you know connecting. Uh, diverse wind resources as well. If it's you know windy in Greece, it's not necessarily windy in Italy. So it allows you to you know overbuild your renewables a lot more than what you could make use of in your own little um, country. And even if you don't get you know really different renewable um, generation profiles between the two places, you are probably going to get some sort of difference in the um, you know in the the loads if you've got different working hours. Um, or just different cultural behaviors as well. Um, and yeah, so I guess that that's, that's primarily the reason. Um, there's heaps of them all over Europe. And this one is, you know, it's pretty short um, compared to what we're up to now. I think the longest one is still 700 and something kilometers between Norway and the UK. Um, and then there's really a lot of longer cables in, um, in planning at the moment. Uh, so yeah, the most out there one is probably, um, what's it called? X-Links that connects Morocco to the UK. I'm personally skeptical if that's ever going to, um, going to end up operational because I just, I just think, you know, like engineering wise, definitely possible, although it is, yeah, it's a long, a long circuitous route that they're planning to take between, um, Morocco and the UK. But I, I think more than technical problems, um, yeah, HVDC cable projects are largely driven by politics and yeah, trading between countries and how friendly countries are, how much they trust each other, how similar their cultures are. Um, yeah, because you, it's really got to be a very strong cooperation between two countries. If I remember right, uh, Rosemary, didn't we kind of talk about one of these that was between the UK and Northern France and it paid for itself in like two years? even though the capital cost was really high. 
Yeah, they put one, the owner of the Eurotunnel um, used used a lot of that uh, infrastructure to run a cable. Um, so it was really cheap to, to make because they didn't have to do a lot of, uh, yeah, digging and uh, I don't know, a lot of work on expensive ships to get that down there. Um, and it you have to kind of tease through the financial statements to figure out what's going on because it does kind of look like they've tried really hard to make it look less profitable than it is and kind of shove some of the um <laughs> some of the uh revenue onto other uh assets that are owned by the same company but it basically looks like it it would have paid for itself in well you know in terms of the term in terms of the revenue that it generated would have been more than what it cost in a year and it's hard to imagine their costs to operate it being that high so yeah pretty pretty appealing but not every project's going to be like that i think i mean early interconnectors uh, you know if there aren't many interconnectors around then you can do much better from the price arbitrage available you know you can imagine if you've got prices much higher in the uk than in europe and you're the only one that can sell electricity between those two places then you've got a lot more chance to clean up than if there's you know 10 interconnectors then obviously that's going to kind of you know bring um, bring the profit margins down a little bit. Um, and then in Australia, we're also looking at some interconnectors. There's a really, really famous one that is being planned between Northern Australia and Singapore via Indonesia, the Sun Cable. Um, that one, yeah, is a really interesting and long-term project will also, you know, probably it's not that um, certain that that one will succeed either, though I am definitely rooting for it. Uh, but one that is probably likely to go ahead is to connect um, the island of Tasmania at the south to the mainland of Australia. They already have a small interconnector there, but they're trying to add another one. It's called Marinus Link, that project. And basically Tasmania is already fully renewable from just their hydro, but they want to be able to add more uh, wind, you know, develop their wind industry more, for example, but they're unable to at the moment because uh, you know, they've just got nothing to do with that electricity um yeah so the idea is to use tassie's hydro a bit more strategically so that it could be like the battery of australia so when you know mainland australia is short on renewables then tassie will send us over hydro electricity and then um the opposites when you know we've got more renewables on the mainland than we know what to do with we'll use that to pump some water back up a hill in tasmania um so, yeah, and that one, whilst, yeah, sounds sounds really great and probably is quite a good, you know, quite cost effective in terms of what else you would have to do to get that amount of energy storage. It isn't something that's just going to pay for itself by energy arbitrage between Tasmania and Victoria, which is the two states that it's connecting. So they're, I think they're still trying to work out the final, um, the final details of the the cost structure, how they're going to finance that project. But I think it is likely to go ahead. That sounds like the solution to New York's problem. Let's build an interconnector from Tasmania to New York. It'd be cheaper. It does beg the question why they don't have an interconnector from, you know, Texas ERCOT to any everywhere else in the country to to be able to do some of this, you know, offsetting of, of negative pricing that they see in, in ERCOT. I mean... You know, they just approved the Green Belt Express in, in Missouri. Yeah, and add some sec security next time that Texas is frozen while the rest of the country is not. It's the obvious obvious solution that has a cultural answer, I would, I would suspect. 
They want you to move to Texas is what they want you to do. And they're going to they're gonna be able to do that because the energy prices are so low. That's why Tesla built a factory there, or more than one factory there. That's why SpaceX is making launches out of there. It's exactly why they're there. It's the energy's cheaper. Yeah, Governor Abbott says, and they just won a big, a big uh, sweepstakes, basically, in the hydrogen hub uh, funding as well. So that's Governor Abbott. He says always, Texas is open for business. And they're going to have a Formula One race there again next year in Austin. Yeah, I wish I was there. We're going to be going to Canada. How do we manage that, Joel? <laughs> yeah, why are we going the wrong way? Where, why are we going to Canada? So our wind farm of the week is Fairbanks Wind Park, which is in the UP of Michigan, right on the northern coast of Lake Michigan. As I'm currently sitting in northern Wisconsin watching the beautiful fall colors turn, I wanted to focus on the closest wind farm to me that is experiencing the same transformation while supporting the energy transition. So the wind farm, uh, Fairbanks Wind Park, is owned by Michigan-based DTE Energy, it's got 21 Siemens SG 3.4132s. Uh, and those turbines actually on this site look like they've suffered some teething issues. Uh, there's several delays where it was offline this past summer. We've got some fantastic data about this wind farm from Intel Store, so thank you, Phil. Uh, the project was originally constructed by Heritage Sustainable Energy. DTE, Ford, and GM are power off takers with a PPA price of $53.78 a megawatt hour. Uh, during construction, the project created 200 construction jobs, um, and it sits to create 24,000 or power for 24,000 plus Michigan homes. Uh, the project is a 12-month rolling average capacity factor of a little over 31%. It's been commissioned in 2021. Uh, they've got a long-term contract with SGRE for service. So uh, uh, the project actually has a pretty high O&M cost, 70, around 73,000 per turbine per year. And that's an actual number reported from uh, DTE. But the project is slated to break even on CapEx invested in 2038, which is 17 years uh, from uh, commissioning date. Uh, and after that, they'll make an uh, DTE has an additional 46 million in net profit plan for it. So kudos to the techs braving the elements and maintaining this wind farm up on the northern coast of Lake Michigan for DTE. Fairbanks Wind Park, you are the wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.